Well, we're carrying on our series, and it's my absolute privilege to uh, be talking about the resurrection this morning. That's the point we've come in the story. So for those of you who are <coughs> visiting us today or just trying to get back into where we're up to in the story, we've been looking at the Bible <coughs> for 20, uh, we're saying we're going to cover the whole Bible uh, in 20 weeks. That means at times we're taking a grand sweep, uh, looking at hundreds of years uh, it was some of the historical books, some of the stories we've looked at, particularly through the Old Testament. But as we get into the New Testament and the coming of Jesus, we've kind of slowed right the way down for obvious reasons, because so much is being fulfilled, so much is coming together, so much of the story comes to a head in the coming of Jesus. And last week, uh, Jonathan brilliantly <coughs> talked about the generosity of God in giving us his Son. So in terms of looking at the death of Jesus, uh, we looked at why did God do that? What was that all about? <clears throat> and where we're picking up the story today is following the death of Jesus. And to set the scene, <clears throat> excuse me, to set the scene, um, you've got to remember the disciples, uh, even though Jesus had told them that he was going to die, the disciples hadn't understood that. And they were shocked, horrified, scared, disillusioned when this happened. They thought, but we've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with a few bits of bread. We've seen him walk on water. He, now he's dead. And so we're going to read the story in a moment from Luke. It'll come up on the screen. But we just need to understand that that's the backdrop. What I wanted to do this morning was simply as I looked at this and thought, what could I draw out I thought, I just, I want to read the story. Because this is the story. And there is no greater and no bigger and more powerful story in all of history than this story. There are no special effects, there's no dramatic music, there's no kind of moody music going in the background and a director setting the scene and all the stuff you get in Hollywood films. Every story that's come out of Hollywood or anywhere else that talks about uh, victory coming, death being overcome, the hero seemingly taken out of the story and then suddenly he's back again later, all of them fall into insignificance when you line up with this one because this one happened. So as you hear this this morning, that for many of us is a familiar story, we sing our songs about it, we know that, that this is at the heart of everything, <coughs> I want it to come to you with fresh power, with fresh understanding. There's no greater story than this one. There's nothing more powerful, more significant, more far-reaching than Jesus actually came back to life again, never ever to die. That's never happened, never happened before. That he came back to life on earth as a person not to die again. Lazarus was raised to life. We see others who are raised to life in the Old Testament, then they go on and die. Jesus didn't. So what we're going to hear this morning, albeit so, so familiar, is the story. And everything comes from this. In terms of the Bible in 20 weeks and everything we're looking at, this is it. It all comes down to this. Because if this didn't happen, we're just looking at a collection of stories. Some exciting ones. Some ones which have incredible truth and stories which still have revelation about God and who he is. But to be honest, it really wouldn't come together or mean anything if this one didn't happen. And Tim Keller, if we can put that slide up. Are we there? I've not actually seen the PowerPoint, so I hope it's there. <laughs> so Tim Keller, who's uh, a preacher and writer uh, and an incredible thinker, 
um, written some amazing books on. And here's one where he's arguing kind of for the existence of God and why we should believe in God and believe the Bible. He says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on whether everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So you take that away, Jesus is just another wandering preacher. You take that away, yeah, he's a remarkable person opening the eyes of the blind and getting the lame to walk, but <clears throat> not much more than that. Everything hinges on this story in terms of who Jesus is, what Jesus came to teach, but in the whole Bible itself. And there are much more that could be said on that, but for the sake of time, uh, I want us to move on. We're going to read all of Luke 24. I'm going to pause in a couple of places to make comments, but everything we believe... Everything we understand, everything that gets written from this point on in the New Testament about the effects of the resurrection, all the things that Paul says, Peter and others in the New Testament, all about our salvation, what Christ has done, who we are, the church, what God is doing on the earth, flows from a story, flows from these events. They didn't suddenly produce a systematic theology or a book of propositions and statements. All of that comes later. It's not wrong. It's another way of understanding truth. The majority of the people at that time, particularly in the East, would have been what we call oral learners, learning through stories. Don't sit down and have a logical, well, if statement one is true, statement two is true, and then I'll give you statements three and four, and then I'll apply it. They simply heard stories and truth would come to their hearts. That's how many in the world today still learn. There's nothing wrong with having our lists and analysing it and categorising it, but not all the world does that. And the Bible is a collection of over 500 stories. Yes, with application. Yes, particularly later. Paul, Peter and others kind of saying, well, if this happened, then this is what it means. But it all comes from this story. And whilst I thought of all the things that we could say, all the truth, teaching points I could come out of this, in the end I felt God wanted us to simply read the story and let the power of that touch our hearts this morning and let it come to us afresh. That's my prayer, that's my passion, that we'd see again the wonder and the power of what happened that morning on the first day of the week. <clears throat> so Luke 24, if you just follow it through, and when I pause, then um, just pause and then we'll pick up again. Thanks. I have got one. I didn't bring it over, but I think I'm going to need it, aren't I, for some reason? Thanks ever so much. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and wait, went to the tomb. So Jesus died on the Friday. Saturday is the Sabbath, so they wouldn't have done anything on the Saturday in terms of any more preparation for the body. So they're going on Sunday, and they're going to do what... It's custom in terms of more spices on the body, preserving the body, etc. They couldn't do it Saturday, um, so they had to do it on the first day of the week, which is significant. We'll come back to that later. So they're wandering to the tomb. Their heads are down. They're despondent. They don't know what we know. It's so important as we read this, we try and understand that. Everything, everything has come to an end. This Jesus who had loved them, cared for them, brought them right into what he was doing. Culturally, that would have changed things in terms of the importance of women, them being within close circle to him. Their backgrounds, the forgiveness he'd given them. 
they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Whilst they were wondering about this, love the way some of this translates into English, and it all sounds very polite and refined. Whilst they were wondering, I think it's a little bit more panicky than that, a little bit more energy. This isn't a stepping back and, hmm, I wonder where the body is. They'd have been startled, they'd have had question, who, how, what, where is the body? The body should be here. This wasn't a government tomb. This belonged to Joseph, someone who they would have known of and re- good reputation. And this was a massive stone that had been moved. Huge questions, not just a kind of polite early morning, hmm, this is fascinating, isn't it? No, much more shocking than that. And this next bit underlines it. Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. That is bright. That is very, very bright. So they're there, the tomb's empty, and suddenly two men gleaming like lightning, clearly angels, stood beside them. Now this next bit comes close in English. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, and this is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, why do you look for the living among the dead? And there's the whole story in that line. Well, because he's not alive, because he's dead. What, what do you mean, why are we looking for the living? We're not looking for the living. We saw him on the cross. We saw him die. <coughs> we saw the soldiers take him down. There was no life. There was nothing there. He had gone. It was over. His life had left. His lungs, his heart had stopped beating. What do you mean, why are we looking for the living? We're not looking for the living. We're looking for the dead. Where is he? Why is he not here? All of that will be going on in their heads. They hadn't seen him, they hadn't touched him, they hadn't heard him. They did not know what was about to happen. What do you mean, bright, shining men, whoever you are, and how did you get here? We'll come to that later. But what do you mean we're looking for the living? We're not looking for the living. We're looking for the dead. And you do understand that most of our work colleagues, friends, and the world would wish it were that way. It would make Christianity so much easier. You would say, well, of course Jesus was an amazing man, but he's dead now. Oh no, if he's dead, there is no gospel, there is no good news. It doesn't matter how we live, it doesn't matter what he said. It doesn't matter how good people think his teaching was. It doesn't matter how remarkable they think his good things were. How the world likes to say, oh, Jesus is amazing. The church, Christians, no, they've just gone a bit far or or they're for another age now. Jesus was amazing. You can't just say Jesus was amazing in his teaching. Because of this line, he was dead And these men say, why are you looking for the living? He's not here, (laughs) clearly. He has risen. And then they go on and say to them, look, remember how he told you whilst he was still with you in Galilee. And then they quote from something Jesus said earlier in the Gospels. The Son of Man. Remember when I was teaching last couple of weeks ago about the Gospels, that this is a title for God, a title which Jesus took, meaning that he was from God. He was God in flesh. He was the sent one from God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's come to rescue. He must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then the women remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, that's the rest of the disciples, and all the others, because there was a larger crowd that had been following Jesus. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, I know, guys, you know, can't we sometimes aren't very nice to ladies. But let us off this one, please. It's early in the morning. We'd seen Jesus killed. We know how powerful the Roman army is. And if you wander back and tell us that Jesus is alive and there were two men in bright lights and he's not there, I think we're allowed to think it's nonsense. So let us off that. There's lots of other things you shouldn't let us off. And guys can be too rude and too arrogant and too dismissive and everything else. But on this occasion, have a little bit of sympathy for Peter and his friends, please. Some of you are still deciding, nope, sorry, you've had all your chances you're going to get. That's it, forget it. (coughs) Peter, however, always Peter, got up, ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. I bet he did. We'll pause in the story. I want to make some comments at this point. We really, really do need to understand this really happened. See, too many people would still dismiss this as still a bit fanciful, or, or we'll get too used to it, and we'll forget its power, forget how remarkable it is. And certainly many, many, many people uh, around today in 21st century UK would definitely say this did not happen. Jesus may have happened, and all, everything I said earlier about how remarkable he was and all of that, that's great, but <laughs> there's no way he came back to life again. That just doesn't fit the history. It doesn't fit that what we're reading here is one of several witness accounts that stand up to scrutiny. This is how these things were reported. People talked about it. <coughs> People say, well, you know, perhaps one of the answers is that he wasn't really dead. The crucifixion, although cruel and, and horrible, that actually there was still some life left and he was fairly beaten and, and everything else and they thought he was dead and they threw him in the tomb. That just doesn't stand up. Rome knew how to kill people. If Rome wanted you dead, you were dead. They checked he was dead. So saying Jesus didn't really die isn't going to wash. And in terms of what the crucifixion does do, without going into all the detail, you don't walk away from that anyway. And even if you did, you're not wandering around in a garden a couple of days later, looking fit and everything else. You don't start saying he's been raised when you're beaten and bones are, and, and, and your body's bruised and everything else. Rome knew how to kill people, so saying he didn't die just doesn't stand. So some would say, well, these are just visions. They wanted Jesus to be alive. This was some kind of uh, <coughs> vision... Um, not a real physical resurrection. But the thing is, they had a category for that. So people at that time um, and that background, they, would, they had a spiritual category of a ghost or his spirit. So they'd have known that. If this wasn't, as we'll go on and see, a bodily resurrection where they could touch and they could feel, they had a category. They didn't need to pretend. More so than what we do. They would have had no problem saying it's his spirit. They'd have had no problem saying it's Jesus' ghost. That's how they thought. If people said they saw someone back from the dead, then that's how they'd have said it. But they didn't say that. If they'd have said that, that would have been far more acceptable to people around them. That would have been understood far more. But that's not what they said. That option was open to them. They didn't take it because it wasn't his ghost. It really, really was him. (coughs) Something, a couple of other things. The fact that for those who followed Jesus... Sunday became the day of worship. So remember, it was the Sabbath. 
They're from a Jewish background. The whole week revolved around doing nothing on the Sabbath. It was a day of worship. After this, it shifted to Sunday for followers of Jesus. You don't do that if you've seen a ghost. You don't do that if the story's not true. The first day of the week where Luke's story starts, and I said I'd come back to it, and we'll come back to it again later. This becomes the day for Christian worship, the first day of the week. Why? Because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when they knew who he was. You don't change an entire religious system's holy day just on a feeling or a nice story or a nice thought. Um, To me, what I think is one of the most compelling reasons why we know this is true is the disciples and New Testament writers continue to call Jesus Messiah. You don't do that for dead people. One of the things we don't always appreciate is there were loads of messiahs or people who pitched up and said they were the Messiah, or their followers said they were the Messiahs. People who came along trying to overthrow Rome, people who came along saying, no, this is what God wants us to do now, this is how, forget the Pharisees, this is how we're to be living. There were, there were several people uh, around the time of Jesus who said they were Messiahs, or whose followers said they were Messiahs. And when they died, they found another one. Oh, he wasn't the Messiah, maybe it's this one. Maybe his brother, or his cousin, or someone else. They didn't do that. They kept calling him the Messiah. All the things I referred to a couple of weeks ago when I talked about fulfillment and how Jesus was the one, he isn't the one if he's dead. It's only if he's alive he's the one. And they carried on calling him that. And you don't do that right the way through history for someone who's dead. There's no such thing as a dead Messiah. And they kept doing it. This really, really happened. And if this really, really happened, we think, why am I majoring this? Many of us are here this morning because we believe this happened. Because it really does change everything. And it continues to change everything every day for every one of us. That's why it's a helpful reminder. And in, certainly when it comes to <coughs> strengthening your faith and people around you who would question uh, what we believe, and even question particularly again after all the horrific events we've seen this week in France, would question religion and question whether there's a place for it or not, you cannot get round someone came, called Jesus, did incredible things, they tried to kill him because the religious rulers didn't want him, the powers of Rome didn't want him, they put him in a grave and he didn't stay there. No matter what goes on in the world, no matter what politically things get said, no matter what anybody else or philosophically may say or argue for, we have to do something with that. It doesn't go away quietly. You can't just sweep it to one side. This happened. Everything hinges on this. Let's get on with the story. We shift focus now. So two more followers of Jesus. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. It's approximately seven miles from Jerusalem. So two, two and a half hours walk. (coughs) They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. They were kept from recognizing him. (coughs) Just struck, even as I'm reading it. Isn't that typical of Jesus just to come to two? You know, there's a whole city he could appear to. It'd be quite good to knock on Pilate's door. Imagine waking Pilate up. Morning, Pilate. She thought I'd come and say hi. What are you doing here? No, they, they've had their say. The authorities and the powers, they've had their say. Jesus knows what they think. He's not interested in them. Jesus is interested in those that are interested in him. Jesus is interested in those who are confused, don't understand what's happened. So he goes after just two of them walking along the road. 
If you are interested in Jesus and knowing him, for no matter what's going on in your life, the times of confusion, disappointment or pain, Jesus will always come to you. You just have to ask him. He will always come to you. Jesus always has time for the one and the two. Oh yeah, he'll be there for crowds sometimes, but he's more interested in the individual. He doesn't head into the city. doesn't do a big publicity campaign. doesn't get to the disciples and say, right, let's get on Twitter, YouTube, let's shoot some videos. Come on, let's have a rally. Let's get into the center of Jerusalem. I've got something to say. Yeah, Jesus, this is going to be amazing. No, he doesn't do that. I don't know if you ever asked yourself that. I thought that as I went through this this week. Why? Something that's not in the story. Why didn't Jesus do that? Because Jesus is interested in those that already know him. And he wants them to understand how, what has happened. He wants them to get this. <clears throat> he asked them, why are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still with their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? I bet Cleopas kicked himself <laughs> afterwards. When what happens next, when he knew who this was, I bet, head in, oh goodness, could I just take those words back? Are you the only one who doesn't know? Excuse me, Cleopas, I am the one. <clears throat> what things, says Jesus? Oh, it's beautiful. What things? Come on, tell me. What's in your heart? What's happening? What's going on? Why are you downcast? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was, was, a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. Chief priests and our rulers, that's important. Handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, I'd love to be there for that conversation. Wouldn't you love to sit with Jesus and have him go through Genesis, Exodus, right the way through the story, the big story that we have done. So look, see that happening? That's me. This one, that's me. I haven't got time to do it this morning. See, that's me. That's me. See that? That's me. That's why I've got to come. All these things Isaiah said, that's me. Oh, amazing. <clears throat> As they approached the village and to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared. <laughs> So I can't read that in the normal, and he disappeared. <laughs> so there you go, he breaks bread. There's no reference here to having communion, but we need to remember that the breaking of bread and wine was a meal. That's what they were doing, and they're remembered. They're remembering Jesus breaking bread, the feeding of the 5,000, the story I told the other week. He broke bread and gave thanks. Their eyes are open, they see. It's him. Hey, it's Jesus! It... Jesus? He's gone. Suddenly left. Their eyes are open. They understand. <coughs> they asked each other, were not our hearts burning, burning <coughs> within us while he talked with us on the road 
and open the scriptures to us. Oh, that our hearts would burn with what Jesus has done. <clears throat> they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together <clears throat> and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Just pause there again for a moment. One of the phrases, <coughs> you know, as the New Testament writers continue and talk about all that Jesus had done, one of the things <coughs> that is absolutely central, one of the things that this story sums up is that Jesus really is the almighty, powerful, conquering king. There's a title in theology called Christus Victus, the Jesus, the victory one, the victorious Messiah. And it comes from this event. Jesus, I said, remember the thing about verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. So the, the most powerful people on the planet, Caesar, Rome, although Caesar wasn't present, didn't need to be, his delegates, Caesar, the one who they called Lord, the one who people worshipped, the most powerful empire on the planet at that time, sentenced Jesus to death, and now Jesus is alive. Who's more powerful? Rome or Jesus? Who's more powerful with all its money, wealth, army? Them? Rome? Surely. People quaked at the thought of Rome. They were the oppressor for Jews. They're the powerful ones. You couldn't come against Rome. No one could raise an army against Rome. No one could break their power. No one could challenge Rome. No one could challenge Caesar. Jesus just has. Jesus is the king. This little story, seemingly, of a man coming alive again, walking out of a tomb, this man appearing to them on the road. They'd have put this together, and they'd have put this together quickly. Hang on, Rome put him in a grave, and the grave can't hold him. He really is the powerful one. He really is the conquering one. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need a political power or a political stage. He has just defeated the power of Rome. Oh yeah, Rome is still there. Caesar's still on his throne. They're still imposing taxes. They've still got armies and everything else. But they can't hold us in the grave. Rome has been defeated the first day of the week on this story. What's more, the enemy... The enemy that's been there from the beginning of this big story that we're doing, from the beginning of in the garden, when Adam and Eve said, this is amazing, God, thank you so much, but we'll do it our way, and rejected what God had said, and God says, from now on, there will be death. From now on, you will die. The power of death itself is now broken. They wouldn't necessarily have got that right away, but I'm pausing here to understand that it's from this story all of that comes. The enemy, never mind Rome, never mind political powers, the enemy which is still the enemy today. There's all kinds of adverts they'll have you spend your money on to just prolong your life, even if it's just getting rid of a few wrinkles, everything else is still dying and getting old. The thing that we still cannot overcome, for science, all our amazing things, still finding stars, even this week, more stars where life could be because it's similar to Earth from its sun and everything, all of this, but we cannot stop aging, decay, death, suffering. Everything changes in this story. Because the power of death itself is broken. The curse of evil and wickedness is broken. No one broke the power of death up until Jesus' coming. Paul talks about, in Ephesians, we'll come to it later in the big story, about the power of God acting in the grave and raising Jesus to life again. And it's that same power that's working in us. We couldn't have started, Rachel, with a better song this morning than how powerful God is. Where do we get that from? You get it from here. 
Yeah, feeding thousands of people. Yes, parting the sea uh, in the Exodus. All of that is God's power. But this is the display of the power and might and faithfulness of God as he reaches into death itself and raises his son to life. The enemy, the enemy has been defeated. If you want to break out in some applause, now's the time. And that's just a warm-up for where we're going to finish. That's why their hearts are burning. That's why they run back. That's why the rest of the New Testament gets written. That's why I said this is the story. Because everything changes. Death itself has been broken. Jesus isn't going to die again. There is resurrection. There is life after death. There is eternity. And it all happened on the first morning of the first day of the week. Isaiah had prophesied this. This won't come up on the screen. Um, It didn't make it to the PowerPoint, but Isaiah 25. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Written hundreds of years before prophesied by Isaiah, probably having no idea how that would happen, certainly didn't think it would look like this. And that's what is happening. The power of death, the shroud that covers all peoples, everything that defines all that separates us from God, all the death, decay, wickedness and evil, everything that has filled our television screens this week. Even today, thousands of people marching in protest, and so they should. But that sense of fear coming and security forces talking about you know, how can we protect? How can we keep us safe? You know, will this come to England? Yes, it will. And if this doesn't, something else will. The power of death has been broken. And therefore, the fear of death for those that believe in Jesus should have no power over us. Because it's not the end. It's not the finish. It's not where the story ends. This is central to everything. I need to move on. <coughs> Verse 36 another amazing bit in the story. I haven't got time to do this justice. While they were still talking about this, so they're in a locked room, we know that from another gospel account, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Now there's 11 of them and others. So there's quite a crowd in the room. And suddenly Jesus is there. They're saying, is this true? Who's seen him? Is him alive? Are the women true? Do we know this is all right? Were they really angels? Do, what do you think's happened? Peter, you went to the tomb. Are you sure it's empty? You, you two from Emmaus, are you sure it was? And didn't it just look like, how do you, bam, Jesus is in the room. And Jesus says this, peace to you. What do you mean peace? You're dead. We're trying to work out what's going on. We just read it so lovely. Peace to you. Oh, lovely bit like they say in a traditional morning church service and the peace with you and also with you there's nothing peaceful now jesus is he's prophesying he's saying look it is all right shalom wholeness that brilliant hebrew word everything there is now peace because i am here and i'm going to bring peace to you it's not asking them to settle down it's not saying calm down everybody not saying oh it's okay now he gets it but he's saying there is peace now because the power of death has been broken. (laughs) Oh dear, I love the NIV. They were startled and frightened. (laughs) Thinking they saw a ghost, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. The ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and whilst they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. As he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that next week. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Whilst he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Jesus ascends. Luke gives in his next book, the book of Acts, a little bit more detail of what that looked like. I'd I'd love to look at that. There's not time this morning. But simply what it means is he is ascending, as Paul tells us, to above all authority and all power, never to die again. That's why he ascends. That's why he's taken from them. And in order for them, them to be witnesses. He's not going to go into the city. He's not going to go and knock on Caesar's door. He's going to send power in order for his disciples to go. What do we see here? We see again the story of fulfillment. God has acted. God is faithful. What he has been promising for centuries has come. And Jesus takes them through the scriptures showing why this must be fulfilled. I want us to go back. And what they'd have seen through that story, through the promises being fulfilled, is that God is now starting again. One of the themes we've seen in the big story is that God comes, makes promises, And then man keeps rebelling, keeps rebelling, and God promises he will overcome sin. Remember the story began on the first day of the week. John does the same thing. It's like they're referencing creation on the first day of the week. God said, let there be. This new life is coming. There is new creation. The New Testament writers talk about this. We'll touch on this in the coming weeks when we look at what they say. There is new creation. The disciples will have looked back and realized the first day of the week. This is God starting again. There is new life, new creation life. Those who believe in Jesus, we have new life. We are new creations. It all starts with the resurrection. God is overcoming the power of evil and wickedness and sin. There is now a new creation breaking into this old one. God will be making a new heaven and a new earth. This explains why Jesus only appears to his disciples. He doesn't go and see Pilate or Herod or the whole city. They've already said what they think of Jesus. They've put him in the grave. At this point, Jesus wants those who have followed him to understand the glory of what has happened and the significance of the new creation and this new life. In the coming months and years, the news of this resurrection will fill the whole city. It says that early on in Acts. The, the, what the disciple, what the apostles were preaching of Jesus' resurrection filled the whole city. That will come, but not through Jesus appearing, through the disciples receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. But God is starting again, so he'll start with a handful, and it will become thousands. But to finish, because we've read the whole story, and there's so much more we could say, what does this mean for us? How does this change everything? What we see now What is happening around us, whatever is going on in your life right now, is not the end of the story. See, Jesus' resurrection really does change everything. 
You may be facing all kinds of challenges right now. There could be job challenges. You may be needing a job, huge financial pressures. You begin 2015, you're glad you could celebrate Christmas, but it's not looking like a great year. There could be some family challenges, some difficulties. I'm not doubting that there may be tears that are shed or there may be pain in your heart or things and confusion. Jesus has been ri- Jesus is risen. He is alive. Everything we taste, touch and experience even this week is not the end of the story. Jesus can change anything in a moment. If life can come from death, then hope can come right into your situation. Jesus can rescue everything. There is no situation too dark. There is no pit too deep. There is no night too long that God cannot break in and bring his bright shining light and resurrection hope right into your situation. I wish that every day I could discipline myself to take the time to read this story, meditate on it, and know that that day has changed because Jesus is alive. Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not simply a man who said good things, who did good things, who healed people and had crowds following him. Not just a man who was popular, but a man who has conquered death. That's who I follow. And if I live like that, then I will not be conquered by anything, no matter what gets thrown at us. And he does not want you to be conquered by anything. Yeah, we may weep. Yes, there may be confusion. Yes, there may be some hard stuff coming up. But Jesus is alive. He is living. And he is walking with you along your road, just as he walked with those two on the way to Emmaus. And he wants you to know that this morning, because he's alive. Death has finished. And evil and wickedness will not win. And no matter what, as I referred to just now, is on our news stories, no matter what our governments and others may say and plan and people being fearful, I understand why, but we're to live different because the power of death has been conquered. It's not the end of the story. Wickedness and evil in the world have not won and they will not win. Death, decay and suffering will be overcome. All things will be made new. There is life beyond this life, and God will bring justice and righteousness, and he will make all things new. Suffering, pain, God not healing. I don't understand sometimes why the healing doesn't come now, because we are to pray for the sick. We know that. The kingdom has come. But there are times when he doesn't heal. It's not the end of the story, because one day, everything, there'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. I've prayed for people just as you have, hoping God would heal them, sometimes even thinking he will. And then in the work that I do, I've had to bury them because they weren't healed. But I've still been able to do that with hope, with joy, because it's not the end of the story. We know how to live even in the middle of death because Jesus' life has come to us. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, this is where we'll finish, writing about the resurrection. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So that's us, everlasting life, the immortal, the imperishable coming. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, listen, because Paul would speak this to us this morning. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Keep loving Jesus. Keep following him. Keep making right decisions. Choosing goodness over evil. Keep worshiping him. Keep persevering in things we think, will I ever see this change? Keep praying. Keep going. Because Paul says your labor is not in vain. The resurrection changes everything. Now here's how I want us to respond. Years ago I had the privilege, someone took me to Colombia, to Bogota, there's a church experiencing phenomenal revival, stadiums full of young people. I had so many stories I could tell, it was incredible. One morning I was in a, a leaders meeting and then someone just brought a kind of, I think, it was a, I think it was a prophetic word, come exhortation, talking about Jesus being conquered, death conquering him on the cross and the devil celebrating and there was all kind of a bit Pentecostal and kind of some cultural stuff in there. And the devil's celebrating and he's got the keys of death and everything else. And there's a knock on the door. And Jesus walks in and takes the keys off him and the devil is defeated. And they did all of this much better than I've got time for. When he said death has been defeated and Jesus took the keys and the power of sin was broken, those pastors in the room jumped up, threw coats in the air, stood on chairs, hurled their jackets above their head and screamed and celebrated with no one exhorting them or challenging them to. And I stood there and I thought, hmm, typical Latin American cultural response. And Jesus rebuked me. He said, this isn't cultural. This is celebrating truth.